1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Have you ever thought about making your own podcast? It's never been easier to get yourself set up, especially if you choose Buzzsprout to host your show.
0: Yeah, we've been using Buzzsprout from the very start. Each week it automatically distributes your episodes to all of the major platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify.
1: It also has loads of tools to help you promote your show. You get a customizable website, you can track your download numbers and they even help you find a sponsor. We have a special offer code in the show notes that takes you to the Buzzsprout website.
0: Signing up to a paid plan by following the link lets Buzzsprout know we sent you, gets you a $20 Amazon gift card, and helps support our show. Just go to the link in the show notes to find out more. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the podcast that brings you the week's most compelling news in science. I'm Tiffany O'Callaghan, I'm New Scientist Features Editor.
1: And I'm Rowan Hooper, I'm our Podcast Editor. This week we're joined by New Scientist reporter Graham Lawton. Hi, Graham. Hi. Coming up on the show, we have a guide to dealing with risk, something we all need to get better at. Uh, We have surprising news about how the ancient moon seems to have protected Earth. We have a new potential way to tackle the antibiotic resistance crisis, which remains one of the world's biggest health problems. And we find out why scientists have been driving over beetles in their cars, but failing to dent them. That's the beetles they're failing to dent. (laughs)
0: But first, many of us have become armchair experts in viruses or virology over the past few months. I know I have. Graham, have you?
2: I have. I have, which is great in one way, because viruses are the absolutely fascinating little... Okay, I was going to say (laughs) creatures then, but that would have got me into trouble in certain circles. So let's dispense with the question at first. Are they alive? Um, Are they alive? Uh, Pass. Uh, some biologists say they are, others that they're not. And I don't think it actually really matters in the grand mm, scheme of things. Matter. Yeah. I mean they absolutely depend on their host to be able to reproduce and spread, but so do a lot of parasites. So I usually just call them biological entities, which kind of annoys the sub editors, but lets me have it both ways.
0: <laughs> You've got a long piece in this week's mag that might change the way people see viruses though.
2: Yeah. So the classic view of a virus is kind of like a lone assassin. So like a single virus particle or virion attacks a cell it executes its genetic program and it turns that cell into a virus factory uh, and the new viruses then disperse in search of victims and that kind of plays into the image of viruses as these kind of merciless robotic molecular parasites
0: but you're saying that's not how it happens.
2: it can be but that's only one of the scenarios because it turns out that viruses have social lives that are really rich and maybe richer than
1: some of ours at the moment yeah that that wouldn't be hard but what does it mean for a virus to have a social life? So
2: what we're talking about really is social evolution theory, which was kind of developed in the 1960s to explain how animals interact with members of their own species and other species. Right. And so animals can cooperate and compete with each, with each other, and they can be altruists and freeloaders and cheats. And altruism in particular was a really big mystery, because why would an animal make big sacrifices to help out another Individual. Anyway, we'll come back to that. So this theory was later extended to plants and then to bacteria, and is now being applied to viruses. So it turns out, you know, they too can cooperate and compete and have altruism and freeloading and all those other things.
1: Right? Okay. Yeah. So I know that with like regular organisms, let's call them that, like us, you know, hedgehogs, plants, humans, uh, you know, kin selection can explain quite nicely why you get altruism because basically it helps copies of the same genes. But then it must get really complex with bacteria that share genes horizontally, you know, with each other, not just down the generations. And then I guess it's even harder with viruses.
2: Well, yeah, it is complicated. But let's start with something quite simple. So one of the things that's been discovered is that viruses hunt in packs. Uh, they form a variety of these things called collective infectious units. And that can be as simple as a swarm of identical viruses around a cell or even as complex as a bubble-like vesicle, crammed full of many virions from different species that are working together, kind of ganging up, wow. on street, as it were. Collective infectious units—that is—that's amazing. It's amazing, and one thing this can lead to again is something that people don't think about with viruses is co-infection, which is where cells are infected with two or more different viruses at the same time. And that can set up all kinds of opportunities for competition and cooperation between viruses. So let's start with the nice stuff, the cooperation. So a really good example of this is a type of flu called H3N2, which is more successful at infecting people when two genetic variants co-infect the same cell. Uh, One variant's really good at entering cells. The other's really good at exiting cells. Now, neither is very successful on its own. But when they work together, they're kind of greater than the sum of their parts.
1: But like, it's just luck that they work together, right? They can't coordinate it, right?
2: Yeah, they're not doing this consciously. This is just evolution kind of blindly acting on the genetic variation that, that's there. But as a result, it's, it's produced social interactions, just like it does with bacteria and actually, I dare say, with hedgehogs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway... This cooperation can even extend to altruism, which is, you know, as we said, where one individual makes a huge sacrifice to benefit another, such as kind of helping to rear its young instead of breeding itself. And the early pioneers of social evolution theory discovered this is actually selfish behaviour, as it helps the one making the sacrifice to usher its genes into the next generation, which obviously is the kind of prime directive of evolution. Uh, it turns out that viruses do this too. So there's another really nice example of this. So that the hepatitis C virus has a genetic variant that's especially attractive to the human immune system. So this attracts all the attention and it gets absolutely hammered. But in doing so, it deflects attention from the other viruses and the infection overall is more successful as a result. So this virus takes one for the
1: team. Yeah, that, that is amazing. Yeah, and there are loads more examples of social interactions in, in the article. All right. So you were saying that this understanding of biology, the one you know, the one that de- was developed in the sixties and seventies, and back then it was called sociobiology at first. So this new field is it's called sociovirology. Is that in homage to the sociobiology of all? Very much so. Yeah. yeah. So it, when it was
2: applied to bacteria, it was called sociobacteriology, and of course they've carried on the tradition and called it sociovirology.
0: So. Could this understanding of sociovirology help us defeat COVID-19?
2: Yeah, well, you've spotted the kind of uh, the ulterior motive for doing this story. So the virologists, I suppose, said, yes, it could. But as yet, they're not entirely sure how, because at this point, they're all intensely focused on understanding the virus itself and its social life is kind of one for to pick up later. But there are, there are some hints. So the hunting in packs thing might be quite important for COVID-19. As it it turns out that we probably need to be exposed to many more than one virus to get infected. Uh, That might be as few as 100, but maybe tens of thousands. And we don't know yet, but people are working on it. That obviously has a bearing on ways to stop transmission. And co-infection might matter too, because it's possible that seasonal flus or colds might inhibit the spread. Of SARS-CoV-2 or enhance it because there is this thing called super infection exclusion, where one virus has got into a cell, it shuts all other viruses out. So maybe having a cold or flu might stop you from getting COVID-19. But
1: do we do we know which way it might go yet? We we literally don't know if it could inhibit or promote. We
2: don't know yet. We don't know yet. But I think I think there are some hints that. That When the colds and flu is circulating, there are fewer cases of SARS-CoV-2. I'm not entirely sure about that. But there's also another thing. We we know that coronaviruses produce lots of things called defective interfering particles, which are basically half-completed or damaged viral genomes. Now, these compete for the host cell's resources and slow the virus down a little bit. And that raises the possibility of producing what are called therapeutic interfering particles that are designed to drag it right down to a standstill. And even before the pandemic, virologists were exploring these to use against other viruses. And I understand that they've now turned their attention to SARS-CoV-2. So socio-virology could help us get life back to normal.
0: Yeah, I really really like the idea that sort of messing with the virus's social life is going to be the key to getting back some of our own.
2: Let's hope so. Let's hope so.
0: That's our sci-fi alert, which means we've got something in the magazine that's already been in science fiction. Rowan?
1: Yeah, there's lots of very cool space stuff going on at the moment. Uh, in last week's show, we talked about the mission to get a sample from Bennu, that near-Earth asteroid. That happened. That went about, That happened successfully, uh, which was quite amazing. The spacecraft got really close to the asteroid, reached out a robot arm, and basically grabbed some rocks and rubble from the surface of the asteroid, and it's bringing it. All the way back to Earth.
0: That is super cool.
1: Yeah, um, but today I want to mention a story we've got about the moon. It turns out the moon might have had a magnetic field of its own, which has really blown my mind. Really, uh, I mean, if it did, it was four billion years ago, but still.
0: So today, the moon is basically a, a dead rock, more or less, with no atmosphere or barely any atmosphere at all. But it certainly doesn't have a magnetic field.
1: Yeah, it doesn't have a magnet. Even Mars doesn't have a magnetic field, Uh, and that's a real problem uh, if you want to go there. If you want to certainly, if you want to live there on the Moon or Mars, because the on Earth, the magnetic field is what protects us from all this really nasty cosmic radiation.
0: So, why do we think the Moon once had one?
1: So, rock samples that were brought back by the Apollo missions show that between 4.2 and 3.4 billion years ago, when the Moon was more than twice as close to Earth as it is now, it did have a magnetic field uh, and it was at least at least as strong as Earth's present magnetic field. And NASA scientists have modelled how this would have interacted with Earth and found that the magnetic fields of the Moon and Earth would have combined and created this a really protective magnetosphere.
0: So the Moon really helped protect the early Earth?
1: Yeah, that's the idea. Uh, the sun was more active in its early life. It was ejecting up to a hundred times more solar particles than it does now, uh, and that should have stripped Earth of its atmosphere. Well, you know, and that wouldn't have been any good for life, the evolution of life. But instead, you know, as we know, life has flourished. All thanks to the moon. Yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, uh, and the magnetosphere might have kept active for you know several hundred million years. But ultimately, the moon drifted away from Earth a little bit uh, and its core cooled down. So the moon cooled and the magnetic field died. Uh, They do, of course, have to do a lot more work to confirm this model, but it's really intriguing nonetheless.
2: I like to think about the moon drifting away from the Earth and it's still drifting very slowly,
1: isn't it? But it's also really funny to think about the moon having a warm core. Yeah, it did get me wondering if you could terraform the moon. That is, like, make it more like Earth and give it an atmosphere and warm it up. Uh, people talk about terraforming Mars a lot, but not the moon because it's so small. It can't hold an atmosphere. But I wondered if you could warm up the core of the moon and get it to generate a magnetic field again.
0: This is kind of ridiculous. And I feel you've yeah, already drifted into the, <laughs> into the. you know, are we already at the science fiction part of the segment?
1: Yeah, yeah, let's say we are. Um, uh, so on that segment, the sci-fi link that I'm going to go for this week is a book by George R. R. Martin.
0: That's the Game of Thrones guy, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. But way before Game of Thrones, he wrote a story about a, a post-apocalyptic earth that was explored by a remnant of humanity that survived on the moon. The book is called Dark, Dark Were the Tunnels. Um, I don't think the moon in his book was actually terraformed. But, you know, the point was, hey, who knew that George R. R. Martin wrote a moon novel? Time out. Time to tell you about an exciting new development in the New Scientist world.
0: Yes, we're launching New Scientist Academy, science courses for everyone. This is our new line of expertly curated online courses to allow you to learn from top scientists about the hottest topics in science.
1: Go to newscientist.com courses to find out more. The courses cover everything from the mysteries of the universe to the wonders of the human brain especially tailored courses including video tutorials interactive diagrams and reading resources plus opportunities for you to test your progress
0: you can learn at your leisure anywhere anytime
1: first two courses launching this year are the biggest mysteries of the cosmos which launches in november and how the brain works and how to make the most of it which comes in december if you register your interest today or soon you can qualify for an introductory rate Go to newscientist.com slash courses to find out more.
0: Next up, we spoke a couple of weeks ago on the show about the Nobel Prize in Chemistry, which went to the discoverers of CRISPR gene editing.
1: Yeah, and we said how it's really a technology that's going to change the world, and how because of that, you know, it's something that we talk about in the mag and on the podcast all the time. So it's no surprise that we've got more CRISPR this week.
0: From our award-winning reporter, Michael LePage.
1: Yeah, Michael has just won an award at the Association for British Science Writers Annual Ceremony. He got an award for a best feature uh, for a piece that you edited, actually, didn't you, Tiff?
0: Yeah, um, Michael did a great job with that. It was about how viruses are being used to infect and kill cancer cells.
1: Right. I'm sensing a theme here with him because uh, this week in the mag, he's got a piece on bacteria that are made into killing machines by using CRISPR. And
0: what are they killing?
1: They're killing antibiotic-resistant bacteria.
0: Nice.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I think this is something we That was a funny nice, wasn't it? Nice. <laughs> sound like Borat. <laughs>
0: <Sorry>. <laughs> oh. i Do it again. It's, it's, it makes me sound like a dog creep.
1: No, I, I think leave it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think this is something we've forgotten about a bit recently. Uh, you know, it's not a threat that's been at the front of my mind, but antimicrobial resistance... That's when you get superbugs that are immune to treatment with antibiotics. That's one of the World Health Organization's top 10 global threats to humanity. So it's a massive deal.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's always good to be reminded that it's not just climate change and presidential elections and coronavirus that we have to worry about, but we're also running out of threats there. No, this is <laughs> an absolute nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> so if we didn't have effective antibiotics, pretty much the whole of modern medicine would be in danger. We wouldn't be able to treat infections properly and things like major surgery, chemotherapy, um, other really critical treatments would be difficult and really dangerous.
1: Yeah. So even though it's been basically pushed off the news agenda for obvious reasons, it is something that research teams around the world are very much looking at. Uh, and it's a, there's, a, there's a really new interesting approach here.
0: Okay, so how can you use CRISPR gene editing to kill antibiotic-resistant bacteria?
1: So this is the story we've got in the mag this week. Um, But in brief, you have to genetically modify bacteria to be able to kill the nasty bacteria, but nothing else.
0: That sounds really difficult to do and also sounds a bit worrying because, you know, effectively releasing deadly modified organisms out into the world.
1: Yeah, Yeah, one of the scientists Michael spoke to said, we'd be releasing genetically modified killing machines into the environment. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) So the idea here, uh, this is what they've done. They've exploited the bacterial equivalent of sex to kill the nasty bacteria. So bacteria don't have sex like us, but they exchange, it's a bit more boring, they exchange circular pieces of DNA known as plasmids. Uh, And what the scientists have done is make a plasmid with CRISPR that seeks out and destroys any plasmids that carry the genes for antibiotic resistance. And then they add these plasmids to regular E. coli bacteria. These bacteria then have become these weaponized killing machines.
0: OK, so let me get this right. The regular E. coli are effectively weaponized with the CRISPR plasmid after yeah. some bacteria sex. And then when they come into contact with resistant bacteria, the weaponized E. coli release their plasmids, which destroy the plasmids of the resistant bacteria yeah
1: right exactly uh, I asked Michael about this and he said the weaponized e coli bonk everything inside bonk <laughs> everything inside <sight. laughs>
0: good which, for them
1: yeah which uh, for people who don't know bonk is an old fashioned word that used to be a euphemism for sex <laughs> uh, I believe it was listed recently as a as a literally an old fashioned word that no one knows the meaning of anymore anyway you could use this weaponized e coli to treat infections that are caused by resistant superbugs um or you could prevent the infections in the first place. And it could also be used to eliminate specific bacterial species, such as those that maybe cause acne.
0: Okay, but so going back to the what could possibly go wrong scenario, how do we stop them breaking out and spreading?
1: Yeah, they're working on that. One way would be to code the plasmids such that they can only survive at body temperature and, you know, if they get to below 37 degrees C, they die, they're destroyed.
2: I'm really sorry to hear that the word bonk has fallen out of use because yeah. uh, my favourite science writer, Mary Roach, wrote a book about sex called Bonk, which oh, yeah. is an absolutely brilliant read. And, but if nobody knows what it's about, nobody's going to buy
1: it. No, well, she'll have to change the title, won't she? T- to shag or something. <laughs> I think that's also quite old-fashioned, Graham. <laughs>
0: now it's time for Life Form of the Week, where we give praise to some organism we've been feeling the love for.
1: Yeah, this week it's a beetle with one of the best names ever.
0: Go on.
1: Yeah, it's the Diabolical Ironclad Beetle. And when I read this, this is a story by our reporter Lael Liverpool, I thought she was just being creative here in her description, but that's actually its name, the Diabolical Ironclad Beetle.
0: So what's diabolical about it, or ironclad for that matter?
1: Yeah, it's the, it's the ironclad thing that is uh, that is notable. It belongs to a group of beetles that are known as the ironclad beetles to entomologists uh, because they can't be pinned out in collection boxes using normal entomological pins. You just can't get a pin through them because they're exoskeletons, so, so hard.
0: So presumably that would have evolved to be that hard so that they can't be, you know, pecked by birds or squashed by bears or something like that.
1: Yeah, something like that. Um, They can also survive being run over by a car, apparently, the researchers ran over these beetles with a Toyota.
0: A Toyota. Yeah,
1: yeah. They were very specific that it was a Toyota. Uh, you know, I don't know if other car, other manufacturers do crush them. No, they don't really. They're, they're uncrushable. These beetles. Uh, so the scientists wanted to know in detail why these diabolical iron, ironclad beetles are so tough. So they did compression tests on the exoskeleton. Uh, while at the same time analysing it under a microscope and by CT scan. And they found that the exoskeleton was surrounded by a really incredible, tiny, intricate, jointed, interlocking structure that absorbs pressure and soaks it all up and allows the beetle to endure extreme compression.
0: Is that something that we could replicate? You know, be able to make really tough materials using without having to use steel or anything. So it'd be much lighter, you know, a, a biomimicry type thing.
1: Yeah. So they've designed a, a mechanical fastener based on the structure of the Beetle's exoskeleton. And it's the kind of fastener that is used at the moment to join materials such as carbon and aluminium that when they build aircraft. Uh, so, yeah, if they can get this working, you could you could get very lightweight aircraft and that would save fuel and be better for the environment and all that. Um, while we're on ironclad beetles and good names for animals, have you two got any favourite names for organisms?
2: I, I do. Some are actually really deliberately comical, which kind of gives word to the lie that scientists don't have a sense of humour. So okay. just to return to beetles, there's a group of fungus beetles with a genus named Jelly, G-E-L-E-A, which is also pronounced jelly. So this genus contains five species called, wait for it. Jelly bean, jelly donut, <laughs> jelly roll, jellyfish. Jelly donut.
1: Yeah, jellyfish. <laughs> and the best of all, jelly belly. Oh, love it. I, I've got another one. Uh, there's a really beautiful octopus called Wonderpus photogenicus, which is its official scientific name. It's not as good as jelly bean, though. <laughs> The pandemic has required all of us to suddenly brush up our risk management skills, and that's not an easy thing to do. It's really hard to make meaningful assessments of risk. So in the MAG this week, we've got a big piece. It's the cover story, and it looks at how we can do this sensibly. Tiff, why is it so difficult?
0: So it's hard for us to make sense of the constant barrage of statistics on everything from infection rates to rising death tolls, in part because of the way in which the information is presented but also in part because of how we respond to it.
1: Yeah, how's that then?
0: There are a few things that influence our response to risk. One major factor is that this pandemic is a new unfamiliar threat. And given the constantly changing figures and information about it, we aren't able to slow down and get to grips with it, as we have with many of the other risks we face in daily life. That all makes it feel very dramatic and and quite scary. So the emotional impact skews how we think about it.
1: And presumably that does matter.
0: Yeah, because it means we make make choices that put us in even more danger. So a famous example of this is what happened in the U.S. after the attacks on September 11th. In the aftermath of that, people became so afraid of flying that more and more people chose to drive places instead. But as we all know, driving is much more risky than flying. So one analysis found that in just a few months after the terrorist attacks, so many more people chose to travel by car that an extra 1,600 Americans died on the roads.
2: Wow. Hmm. Are we making similar dangerous trade-offs now with COVID?
0: Yeah, we seem to be, unfortunately. Pretty early on in the pandemic, it was already clear that in many places around the world, far fewer people were going to the emergency room or, or A&E for heart attacks and strokes. But at first, we couldn't exactly say why. You know, Was it possible that actually fewer people were experiencing them for some reason? but now we have the data to look at and unfortunately that's not the case instead it seems that people were so afraid of picking up covid-19 if they went into the hospital that they simply didn't go and that's had some pretty devastating results one recent study in England and Wales found that in the early months of the pandemic this led to an extra 17 deaths per day compared to what we would normally see
1: uh, that's that's awful so but what can we do about it how can can we react differently to all those stats and numbers so that they don't make us so afraid or make or, you know they don't make things worse
0: yeah we go into this in the in the magazine in some detail this week or uh, our writer dan jones does um, but there are some really helpful rules of thumb so to start with simply being aware of how the information we're hearing is impacting us emotionally can make a big difference in how we interpret it and another thing is when you hear some alarming statistic that you know such and such a thing doubles your risk of death or or whatever it may be, have a closer look at what the numbers actually refer to. You know, specifically, is it pertaining to your absolute risk or your relative
1: risk? Oh, yeah. Give us an example of that then.
0: Okay. So if you have an absolute risk of, say, 1 in 100 of something happening, that's pretty low. And if that risk were to double, so your relative risk was twice what it was before, it is still only... Two in one hundred, which is still pretty low. Right. But if you only thought about it in terms of the relative risk that you've got twice the risk, that sounds pretty alarming.
1: Yeah. Um. It's okay. What else can we do to feel more comfortable thinking about, you know, navigating risks in the months and and definitely years ahead that we're going to still be dealing with COVID nineteen.
0: So we we give a few different suggestions, but one practical suggestion that really sort of resonated for me is to think about the risks you face in terms of a weekly budget for potentially um, risky meetups or contact with other people?
1: Oh so that's a bit like the radiation budget that astronauts have.
0: Yeah, kind of. You can set yourself a budget. you know you can have unlimited low risk outings like going for walks outside um, maybe, and then a certain number of higher risk outings like meeting friends indoors or traveling by public transport. You can set yourself a contact budget. That you feel comfortable with then you can keep to it
1: how do you calculate how risky those different situations are
0: so we spoke to the epidemiologist eleanor murray at boston university about this and she said when you're thinking about this there are four main things to keep in mind the person place time and space so person refers to how many people will be where you're going and how many of those aren't people you see regularly or aren't in your bubble so it could increase your risk of exposure to the virus Place and space are whether you'll be inside or outside, or if there'll be decent ventilation or adequate space for you to maintain social distance, and time is how long you'll be there. Then you can see if you can tinker with any of those factors to make a meetup less risky. Choose to meet friends for a walk outside instead of at a coffee shop maybe, that kind of thing.
2: So what if you blow your risk budget? Is it is it a bit like saying, Well I've already eaten half the tub of ice cream, I might as well finish it off?
0: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's exactly what the experts say. Just go totally bananas. No, of course not. Like if you blow through your risk budget, then it just means the next week you have to rein it in. So after that, you know, Zoom quiz is only for you.
1: No, Zoom quizzes a <laughs> nightmare. <laughs> that's all for this week. Thanks for joining us, Graham. And thanks to you for listening. One other thing to mention uh, that we didn't get round to today, but in this week's MAG, we've got an analysis of Donald Trump's impact on health, environment and space ahead of the U.S. election.
0: That is well worth a read, definitely. And remember, as a podcast listener, you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist by using the code POD20 at checkout. Do get in touch for a chance of a shout out on the show. We're on Twitter at New Scientist Pod, and you can email us at podcast at newscientist.com. And in the meantime, do spread the word about our show.
1: Until next time, take care. Be sure to join us next week for the Halloween special. Goodbye for now.
0: Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.
1: This podcast is produced by Oli Giu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. How old up?